Every journey begins with a question. Our journey begins with this one. How can we lead to make the world better? Here, we explore that question through journeys of great success and accomplishment, confronting challenges and overcoming obstacles with leaders from around the globe, whose experience covers a vastly diverse range of background, sector, role, and expertise. One common thread unites them all. They are all leaders striving to make the world better. They are all better world leaders. Welcome once again to Better World Leaders. I say that somewhat presumptuously. Uh, I might be saying, hey, welcome for the very first time. Who knows, right? But uh, I'm very glad that you're here one way or the other. And I'm particularly glad that you're here because the conversation that follows this is one with somebody who has helped me personally immensely. Uh, an author, a social researcher, uh, you know, someone who, in her own words, takes very seriously and has essentially devoted herself to and then become known for being someone who understands particularly how Australians feel about their lives, about the lives they're living now, about their leaders, about where this country is going and the good and the bad things about it. This is a conversation with Rebecca Huntley, who is one of Australia's most well-known, most well-respected, one would say, um, social researchers who has been studying, yeah, essentially the Australian experience and belief system for decades. Rebecca's focus now is very much on climate uh, and the book that she has written, How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference, has been instrumental and extremely helpful to me on a number of levels. This is a conversation which includes many things, humour, food references, um, a fair amount of frivolity and some deadly seriousness about where we're at, where we are looking like we're going, and what might need to be done in order to go elsewhere and avoid um, some of the real calamities that potentially lie ahead um, and in fact create abundant opportunity to be different, do meaningful work and find joy, energy and fulfilment in creating our better world. Welcome to a co-created conversation between myself and Rebecca Huntley. Rebecca Huntley, welcome. Welcome very much. Thanks for having me. Now, I would like to begin, if I may, just with a little personal note of gratitude before uh, we sort of get into it. Your absolutely miraculous book, um, which I have literally in hand. For anyone who hasn't already, stop listening now and go and get yourself, yes, you know, graceless plug uh, a copy of how to talk about climate change in a way that makes a difference by our very esteemed guest here today this book has been so uh instrumental in enabling me to step into doing the work that i am doing um 
in the climate movement. And uh, I know we've spoken about this just a couple of minutes ago um, off air, but I, I wanted to just express that up front that I am extremely grateful for the work that you've done in producing. Thank this you so much. If, uh, if this was a video, you'd see me blushing, but you can't hear me blushing <laughs> on a podcast, but I'm very pleased. And it's, it's great because I wanted to write a useful book that people put down and instead of thinking, oh God, we're screwed. <laughs> Um, thinking, okay, I could, I might have a role to play, or I've got some tips and skills to be able to make a contribution. That's really what I wanted to do. I would say mission accomplished, <laughs> you know, absolutely delivered that outcome, and uh, and yeah, and no doubt we're going to touch on various elements, um, you know, within that construct as we go through today. So before we do that, could you please share where in the world you are today? Well, I'm in my bedroom stroke living room at the top level of my rented house in Roselle, Gadigal land, never ceded, so I pay respects to elders past and present, and um, it's a beautiful sunny day in Sydney and in the inner west, well behind the turmeric latte curtain. <laughs> 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 Which is an even more even a more distinct curtain than the goat's cheese curtain. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, c- culinary inclination identifiers for uh, for, oh, for yeah, Sydney sliders. So I, uh, I, I could say I should say we actually emerged from that curtain. Uh, so depending on where 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 in Roselle you are, we were for five years um, just across the bay in Dremoyne, uh, looking looking out um, at Roselle, and then we uh, escaped from the curtain. Um, and now find ourselves and where I am today um, is on Woody Woody Country just outside Nowra in... Uh, oh, it's a beautiful area. Yeah, really, really beautiful. Did you did you have to escape from the curtain at its dead of night as people threw, <laughs> as people threw protein bliss balls at you in an attempt to stop you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. No, what we, what we actually found was, um, you know, was, was, a, was a string of, uh, you know, sort of uh, the receptacles for those former turmeric lattes All right. you know, <laughs> on right. a string behind our car, right? Yeah. <laughs> I thought this is going to be a serious, not a comedy podcast, but there we go. Well, you know, you got to you got to take the the heavy with the light, right? Yeah, you really do. Uh, we've got to bring some fun. Um, so, thank you for that. So let's let's then explore first of all a little bit of your story. Like you know, so so before you came to be within this curtain, um, you know, where where have you spent your time, and uh, and what what has brought you to being with us here today? Oh well, look, I. I, um, you know, as a child, I moved around between different cities in Australia and also overseas. My dad's an academic and my mother's a teacher. Um, and then I studied, you know, law and film and did a PhD in politics at uni and always thought I'd be an academic. Um, um, we're kind of seeing, I kind of saw at the time you know, in the early 90s and we're seeing now as well just the hollowing out of universities in Australia, you know, decades of underfunding, which is really a national shame, Um, very unfortunate. But I kind of at the time thought, you know, for somebody who wants to be able to occasion, you know, wants the luxuries in life like food and a house and those kinds of things, I was looking for 
permanent and more secure work. And so I kind of stumbled really in many ways across social and market research and found that it ticked a lot of the boxes that I really enjoyed about academia. So um, mainly research and reading and writing, but also working, you know, I, I don't teach, but I do a form of my research is it, it, it is trying to be useful to people as they do different kinds of things. So I, I fell into social market research and was a director at a research company, big global research company called Ipsos for 10 years. Pretty much spent all of that time in, in Sydney. I haven't really lived anywhere else. Love this, love this city. And then after a, a decade at Ipsos, I continued doing research at different companies and now I kind of run my own business and consulting. And throughout that time, I did you know, various other bits and side hustles. So wrote books and wrote for magazines and newspapers and, you know, have done other done a lot. When it all when I write it down on a piece of paper I know now this is why I'm tired. <laughs> so done a lot of things. But the main thread throughout my whole life for for my adult life has been um, living in Sydney and a love of of research and writing. So before we come to the sort of shift, um, the transformational chapter, I suppose we could say. Yeah, well, just just to touch on what, what have been some of the sort of primary domains that your research has focused on? Yeah, so look, I w- I've always been somebody who you would describe as being a left of centre politics person. So I've always been, in, you know, as a younger woman, I was always interested in issues around gender. And, you know, I come from an Italian background. So I've by no means say that I um I I'm we're all we're all multicultural, but I no way so I would say that being Italian, growing up Italian was an issue. But I could see that it was a real issue for my mother, an issue around discrimination for my mother, and certainly for my grandparents. And so I've always had an issue, or, uh, you know, interest in researching issues around race and immigration. Um, so that was kind of my you know various interests in politics and feminism and. Um, race at university and in my academic career. I taught lots of different kinds of things. But when I was working at Ipsos, part of my remit was to research quite broadly. And there were some some particular areas that I was interested in personally. I suppose, again, um, uh, I was particularly interested in issues around gender and gender equality. I did a lot of research on superannuation. I've always got a real interest in, I know it's, it, for some people it um, makes people fall asleep, but uh, the the amount of money that Australians have in superannuation and what we could do with that money to create a better world is a very kind of forgotten, neglected area of policy. It's like a um, uh, we could do a lot with that. There's a lot of interesting stuff happening around climate and superannuation. So I kind of researched things really broadly and I wrote about things quite broadly as well. So my first book was on young Australians Generation Y, terrible term, but I really wanted to understand, you know, what were the pressures and issues that faced them and what kind of future would they be growing up in. Um, unsub- that, that book's 15 years old and I went and um, had a look at it the other day. What were the top three issues for young Australians 15 years ago? Housing affordability, mental health, climate change. <laughs> So part of me thinks, oh, God, well, environment at that stage. And you just sort of think, oh, wow, how have we failed? Um, uh, younger generations with not addressing those three fundamental issues, which are, you know, in, in some ways inter- interconnected. So 
And yeah, so I, and then I suppose, I mean, what I have been um, up until more recently is seen to be, um, uh, you know, somebody who understands how Australians feel about the lives that they live now, how they feel about our leaders, where our country's going, um, what are the good and bad things about this country. So at a very broad level, that's what I've always been interested in. And then at different times delved into, in the writing I've done, into to different kinds of things that interest me. And I suppose the only other thing that I've has been a kind of common personal and professional interest uh, is food and cooking because uh, I've always had an interest in that and, you know, I mean, most Italians have an interest in that. I don't want to make um, too many um, stereotypes, but uh, we do. We do. I mean, one of my earliest memories as a child was walking into my um, uh, grandparents' kitchen and my nonna and nonno were having the most extraordinary, what seemed to be a fight with my mother, you know, hands waving, voices raised. And I remember saying to my mother, what's happened? And she said, oh, we're just talking about are we going to have pasta or are we going to have meat for lunch? (laughs) And I thought, wow. First of all, I thought I better learn this language so I know that we're having a conversation about a menu and not some kind of enormous family feud. So I've been, look, I've always been interested in how people eat and the social and cultural implications of that. And, in fact, some of the earliest um, research and broadcasting work I did was on the nexus between climate change and food, even before I became interested in climate change. So, yeah, food's been a, food and cooking's been a big theme in the work that I've done. No, thank you for that. And we can see the consistent theme emerging again with the early analogies in this conversation around, uh, you know, being ev- evict- eviction via bliss ball. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but... I mean, this this is yeah. Here's me kind of putting my own you know sort of uh, researchers hat on for a moment. It is so consistent and so curious to me how much of the work that we find ourselves doing um, when we sort of come to rest in well, this is the really important stuff. Like this is this is the work that I'm really glad I'm showing up to do. How much that is referenced going back over for some people whole of life. Right. And those signifiers and those symbols that you're then saying, well, this is why it's important. Like they've been they've been essentially there um, potentially always. And and the, the question and you know, this is, uh, I think, uh, you know, where we can sort of um, build a bridge to, to move into your current focus and the work that you're doing right now is what are, you know, the shifts, what are the um, stimuli or the prompts, the nudges that you know, we receive in order to recognise those symbols and signifiers and see them for what they are and then go, okay, this is what it is and now this is what I'm going to do. So what were those for you? Yeah, it's a great way of thinking about it. So, and you don't know whether, in fact, these were, you know, I think there's a mixture of that these are things that are like little breadcrumbs in your life that you don't quite see but you're following kind of out of the corner of your eye and they lead you in a place or whether you look back and you're looking back through a different lens and you're like oh that was a moment that I didn't recognize that was leading me here so it might be a combination of the two so there's a a personal and a professional trope here the the personal trope was that as somebody who grew up with two parents that um never really liked going outside. I didn't grow up like a lot of Australians do, you know, spending a lot of time at the beach or going 
I never went camping. My mother used to always say, wogs don't camp. <laughs> she said, Julius Caesar used to camp, but only because he had to. <laughs> so we never, and so I didn't grow up in the Australian bush. In fact, I, and when we would travel because of my parents, we would travel overseas at a time when it was quite expensive to travel overseas. So I had no experience of the Australian bush. When I first started my research career, realising that I would have to travel around Australia to both present my work but also do my research, and out of a really, you know, a, a you know, I, I always found, I know people cringe when I say, when you can say this, but a deep love of this country, I thought, I really want to get to know Australia, you know, um, and not just the little my little part of it. And I started doing bushwalking, which to anybody who knew me as a teenager would absolutely, or even as a 20-year-old, would absolutely piss themselves laughing. So I, you know, I went and bought hiking gear and, you know, and so I've been a kind of long, you know, a, a multi-day walker and a, um, I love the Australian bush. So, um. And I suppose one of the things I thought about it is, that, and when I had children, is I wanted to get them to grow up to appreciate the Australian bush because I didn't think that they would passionately want to defend it unless they understood it and connected with it. And for me, that was very much about being an Australian and understanding Australia. But there was obviously an environmental dimension to that. And it, it, as somebody who never saw themselves an environmentalist, it was I became an there was a creeping environmentalism that happened as I spent time in the Australian bush, and saw it as just the most extraordinary place that needs to be protected. So there was that, and, and you know, again, as part of this desire to understand the um, length and breadth of this country better for my own personal and professional reasons, you know, for example, we took um, our eldest daughter. I thought, well, you know, the reef isn't great. I want to take her. And we went, um, my ex-husband and I and, and my daughter, when she was five, she's a very good swimmer, out snorkelling in the reef. And I remember thinking, as is something that every Australian should do or try and do. And there was that fleeting moment as I watched her through the water, kind of, you know, with the fish. And I thought, oh, is she going to do this? Will she remember this? And will this be a moment for her? But also, will she do this with her children? Or will she visit the reef with her children like we visit the Coliseum to see a place that was once, you know, thriving and is like a wreck? Like, so that was that moment for me as well. So there was a kind of a, a, a learning to love the Australian bush as part of my professional and personal interest. Then there was also, I suppose, nearly 20 years of listening to Australians talk about the big, what seemed to be intractable problems that face us and communicating those problems and how people feel about them to bureaucrats, politicians, leaders of companies, all the rest of it, all the leaders that I used to work with across the public and private um, uh, spheres of influence in Australia about these questions. And it was clear that climate was emerging as the big one and and one that wasn't just about saving some trees but was a real challenge around where Australia fits in the world, what our, where our economy is going, you know, as well as the broader threats that face us that are much more existential. And it, it made me also realise from, from both a personal, as in I want to protect this beautiful country so that my children can live in it and, ra and want to raise children in it, 
but also from a professional point of view, which is this is a nut we have to crack as a nation. This is something we just have to deal with. And now as we face COP26, we see that for whatever, you know, for a whole range of reasons, Australia is an outlier, is an international outlier. The world is shifting, moving quickly, and we are not moving. And I don't, and I just thought this is a mammoth public persuasion, um, political and communications project and I potentially can make a contribution to that because for the last 20 years I've been listening to Australians talk about the kind of future they want and helping different organisations understand that so they can act and I thought maybe there's a role for me in this. Um, But more than anything, the biggest transformation was watching the ongoing, extensive, genuine anguish of younger Australians and younger people around the world who are the age of my daughters genuinely say, we worry about our future, not in a kind of a, will I get a job? Will I fall in love? Will I buy a house? I mean, all of those things that are important, like, will we survive? Is there any point about me getting a really, really good HSC mark if there aren't any, if there aren't any jobs for me to have in an economy that is being crippled by extensive climate effects and social disruption, all the kinds of things that I mean, it makes me sound like I'm being alarmist. But actually, two days ago, one of the co-chairs of COP said that the very stability of the world order is at stake if we don't address this. Um, effectively. I think that's something where you feel like, I feel like at this point of my career, I probably need to make a little bit, put put my energies into ensuring (laughs) the continuation of civilization of a moral obligation if I have children, I think, for me. That's a big answer to a small question. (laughs) I put a lot in there for you. Sorry, Tim. No, no, no. I mean, I think the exact opposite, right? So uh, explicit Again, gratitude. You know, you know, I would say that if a deep and um, emotive and meaningful answer is a response to a question, then it's a good question. Yeah, no, that's all going in. And I think I think where I would invite us to go next is to actually sort of continue along that arc that you know you've just touched on. Um, but before we go there. You know, I don't want to, um, yeah, overdo the alarmist sentiment because I, like you, have had enough exposure and I, you know, I've had personal exposure and also then, um, you know, community and professional exposure to know that like, that is a, that is a, a bell that needs to be rung, but then it also needs to be put down so that you can actually go on with doing the constructive work that needs to be done. Um, And, you know, yes, we sit here in this, you know, very seemingly paradoxical moment where, you know, and I'm going to say we, uh, you know, as as a nation have this vector that seems to be drifting away where then we also have this really um, felt 
experience of you know the black summer you know still very um you know sort of prominent in people's minds we also have this real sense of um i think it is almost conflict you know within our political arena um and so much momentum you know from the population at large from business in particular from certain sections of the sort of institutional community um certainly academia um and a small portion of our governmental institutions but not insignificant ones like the vast majority of our state level governments are like very much moving you know kind of in the direction that we would say you know absolutely needs to be done um and then we have this substantially influential laggard group um who are basically just digging themselves a foxhole right it's a it's a really good metaphor there the foxhole metaphor because because they can often present themselves as some kind of vast army but they're not they're kind of they're what happens when 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 you've where you kind of know the war is ending but you're 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 kind of fighting a kind of guerrilla warfare in the hills, which is still stopping the war. But you know, it's still. I mean, I don't want to use war metaphors, but you're still you're stopping progress happening, and you're delaying the inevitable. But you're doing whatever you can for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. To keep no, I think, it going. Just, just to just to continue the metaphor for a moment, I look at it like a last stand. Right. Um, one of the original pieces of um, research that I did as a high school senior um was on a very famous last stand of the british armies in africa um and you know that led me to be offered a place at a very prestigious institution in london to go and do anthropological research in africa um which i turned down because it was too bloody expensive Uh, i was right at the turn of full grant funded higher education stopping and I was the second year of fee-paying higher education. So I had people that were in their senior year when I was a freshman who were literally being paid to stand at the bar while I was paying to go to my lectures. It was a bizarre paradox to be in. But where I'm going with this is, you know, there, there has been, and again, you know, we talk about story, we talk about how story becomes identity. There has been you know, a lot of celebration of these sort of rearguard actions right, that it gets woven into our sort of social identity. Like you think about John Wayne movies and, you know, all, all these sort of superhero things, right? Like it's small bands of typically white dudes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like striving against insurmountable odds. And, and those kind, you can see those kind of language dialects coming out, you know, in the campaigning, like in mm. the advertising, like yeah, in, yeah, the, you know, like, uh, in the conversations that we see in our, in our halls. But here's the other paradox. They're doing that. They're digging that little small hole on that isolated hilltop, you know, fighting the good fight, as it were. On the other side, we see so much abundance and so much opportunity Hmm. and so much action. And, again, as we were just talking previously, like yesterday, you know, we had this um, pronouncement from, you know, just a guy who runs a little firm who just hold the greatest amount of wealth that is reinvested, Larry Fink of BlackRock, um, talking about the next thousand billion dollar IPOs will all be within climate related fields. 
right? It just seems so antithetical that, 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 that there's this, not this recognition. So here's the next question for you, if I may, having rambled a little bit too long myself. Um, not that that's what you did before. Where does this arc go? So where, where you've just finished this was in you know, anguish and despair, essentially, which are two identifiers within your book. But where, how do we progress on and sort of what is the journey and what in particular the obstacles that we need to speak to as we move along that arc? Yeah. So look, I'll, so I think that, you know, there's that, that classic phrase about the, that history, um, you know, isn't a progression, isn't a kind of linear progression, but the arc moves towards justice. I mean, people would contest that, but I think let, let's just let's just take that as something that we broadly agree with. And I think that that's where I mean, I can only I, let's start talking about Australia, and I think that that's certainly what's happening. So about so after I did cl- the climate reality training in Brisbane, um, face to face with Al Gore, and you've just recently done it and started researching my book and I was pretty much finished the book but it was before the black summer fires really kicked in but I was I was in the process of writing it and I'd been asked to go down to Canberra to talk to a particular group of progressive politicians um I won't name who they are um not the greens <laughs> and not the coalition so you can guess who um about what my observations were around around where we need to be on climate what I said to them, this was some time ago, what I said to them is what are, what the opponents of action on climate are very good at doing is just bald-facing, is, is in the most audacious way saying that they are speaking on behalf of a silent majority of ordinary Australians, even though there's absolutely no evidence that they do. The National Party continue to do this. The greatest beneficiaries and the, the the greatest beneficiaries of a transition away from fossil fuels to renewable energy will be regional Australia. They're not building renewable hydrogen plants in Roselle. <laughs> <laughs> That's not happening. They will benefit if we do it right. The people at the coalface of climate effects are people in regional Australia. In the Torres Strait, not, I mean, not, not even, we're not even talking about remote communities where there's no water anymore. We're not even talking about communities around where you live, as we saw in the Black Summer Fires as well. Not in Roselle. But they continue to say, to stop effective climate action, saying that they're speaking for regional Australia, regional rural Australia. They are not. They're really speaking to the people that have funded their campaigns and funded them and supported their careers for generations. It is the most self-interested thing. So one of the things I said, but but they get away with this and they get away with it even with the communities that care about these issues. So in the work that I do, people will say, well, I really care about climate change, but people in regional Australia, they don't. Or people in regional Australia think other people don't. Like it's quite extraordinary. The research continuously shows that the majority of Australians, wherever they live, you know, any demographic that you could break down want action on climate and that's accelerating. So one of the things I said to this group is I said, what you need to do is show that 
in every walk of life, every type of Australian outside the environment movement care about this and are moving. It can be the Farmers Federation. It can be, you know, the kinds of big investment firms. We You talked about BlackRock, but Macquarie Bank, one of our biggest banks investing in all kinds of things, will get out of thermal coal by 2025. I have mustards in my fridge <laughs> that will last beyond 2025. 2025 is right around the corner, as we all know. So, Again, food metaphors for me too. <laughs> so I just said what you need to do is you need to show how the world is moving and all part, all all kinds of the world is moving. And even more has moved in that last three years. We've seen everything from the Pope produce an encyclical on climate change to the Queen, you know, basically troll the Prime Minister for not, you know, she chooses her words very, very carefully you know, being heard to troll our Prime Minister about not turning up to Glasgow. So you've got, what I said is what you have to make visible is the chorus of different kinds of voices and action on climate change and what's happening. And what that will do when we're talking about people whose positions are entrenched and they've entrenched themselves in significant parts of of, of now our political class and to some extent some of our corporate class, but less and less so, because they're far more exposed to what's happening globally because they're connected globally, what you've got to do is show them to be the isolated, self-interested individuals that they actually are. So that is the key. The key is to be able to make visible to people, the community, that actually this renewable energy is not a new form of technology, that This isn't something where we have to choose between the climate and jobs or the climate and economic prosperity or the climate and and cost of living, that these things are connected. And you need to have, like I said, a chorus of voices talking about that. And that really goes back to your point about one of the problems with the hero narrative because if we've got an investment in individual voices kind of you know, yelling at each other across Twitter or kind of, you know, celebrities either in the kind of the in the climate movement or elsewhere about this, it becomes less of a whole of community grassroots from every part of community conversation, which is what it's got to be. And when that happens, these people in these foxholes won't be able to last. I mean, they'll leave the foxholes and go and get jobs in, you know, the diminishing parts of the economy where they can kind of put themselves on a board for a little while and then, you know, retire, maybe have a have a um, talkback radio show or whatever, but their, their influence will diminish. And you're already starting to see that. But it takes a while and what, what that amounts to is something that is even more dangerous than denial is delayism. We're in a a shocking period of delayism which says all the right things about climate change and says all the right things about targets but actually doesn't. It actually just drags the chain. Thank you again. There's an enormous amount compacted uh, (laughs) very eloquently into a, a remarkably brief space. Goodness, where to go from there? So I, I'm going to I'm going to sort of double click on three things. Where I'm going to try to. I think there's there's a quick uh, sort of personal story um, just to just to reflect how long you know sort of this um, unrecognized but very active resistance has been going on. I think then there's that the, I'm going to come back and hook onto um, the uh, somewhat shared experience that we've had, you know, in this very well intentioned cohort of global climate leaders. 
And then I think where I'd really like to go is kind of really kind of then piggybacking off the the the, the final um, sort of section there about okay, what is the way to um, radically progress and accelerate and just leave behind denialism? And if the start of denialism, you know, we can kind of feel like we've seen the end of that now, but delayism could really kind of cause some significant problems. How do we just burst those banks and just keep going? Um, so very, very quickly, story of a young woman who succeeded in uh, getting into uh, the civil service and, you know, was 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 really, uh, you know, sort of joyous in, in feeling like she was going to be in a position to influence the highest levels mm. of policy. Mm. And one of her very, very first assignments was to go out and, you know, research and gather understanding and present a case for what are the alternative energies that we as a nation, um, you know, should be investing in. And so she went out and she spent six months meeting the scientists and talking with the business community and essentially came back with something that, we would look at and go, well, yeah, absolutely, right? It's obvious, right? It was. We need to really invest in in, in hydrogen fuel cells. We need to look at solar and wind power, and we need to think about what are the systemic societal shifts to, with a just transition, shift us from where we are right now to where we are. And the response that she got was that we couldn't possibly put this recommendation forward to the minister because we are here as the Ministry for Energy to support and advocate for, in this context, the oil industry. And so her response was essentially to say, well, you're not actually fundamentally interested in any kind of change. You're not actually interested in serving your role as an impartial intermediary that informs uh, our elected officials. Uh, You are just brokering on behalf of the current power brokers that woman was my mum and that was 1971 oh. in the yeah. uk right wow. um so you know this has been going on for a while yeah <laughs> and you know therefore i think you know the reason i share that now is it it it, it, it does i think bear reflection of just how well established these defensive positions are mm right? They are shrinking, right? They are now kind of retreating back into those very, very final redoubts to reflect again on a military term. But, um, you know, there is a reason why it's not a push button exercise to flip the switch, right? There is a lot that certain corners view that they have to concede in order for this transition to happen. And the way to do that is to make the opportunity so overwhelmingly great and accessible that it becomes nonsensical even for them to remain in their defensive position. So I just wanted to share that. No, no, so interesting. And, you know, there's there's this kind of theory going, kind of concept going around around state capture, which is that it's not like they they were being corrupt in any way. They were just realising that the interests of the oil lobby around energy was so overwhelming that to conceive of anything else just seemed like not only just, just kind of it's just inconceivable right the problem of course is that you know you can you can is that the interests and so that's when you get the interests of of 
corporations and the actions of the state aligned, but their mission is dramatically different. It's not really in in the central mission of a of a company to plan for the well-being of all citizens for the future. It is central to the central mission of governments. So you can have organizations like big energy organizations make a decision to say, well we've done we've done fossil fuels for years, now the economics is changing and we're going to do renewable energy. And people think, "Oh, aren't you great and innovative?" But if you're a government that makes that shift, then you actually people lose trust in you because what they expect you to do is not just think about today, they expect you to think about tomorrow. And we're continuously having governments that fail in that ability to be able to do that for our citizens. And, of course, one of the really unfortunate consequences of that, and I see it in my research all the time, is that when you say to people, when you put proposals about a great, you know, economy and society in the future driven by renewable energy with nature-based solutions to climate, with more forests, more green space, all the rest of it. Everybody loves that vision. No people worry that government has the for, has the independence, the foresight, the desire, the determination, the integrity to make the kinds of decisions now to make that happen in the future. And so that's our biggest problem. Not that people lack faith in corporations as they lack faith in government. So when in that kind of situation with your mum, where the government was acting in the interest of, of the status quo, of the economic status quo, and not thinking, okay, well, we can't, we can at least try and invest in this and build a future for when the economics of that make sense, wouldn't, you know, we'd be in a so much, much better position that we would not be behind the eight ball in the way we are now. Yeah, and there's so many analogies like this, you know, like NASA scientists who walked away 20 years ago because no one was listening and and so on and so on. So thank you and well, point well made. So let's just talk about climate reality as an example of where there is so much kind of potential um, to just break, break those chains of denialism and also kind of like move through the delayism. So my experience somewhat in contrast to yours because it's COVID now, so it's all virtual. Um, but like you, you know, having an experience you know, in, a, in a global cohort of thousands of well-intentioned people uh, and coming like you, you know, sort of into this work feeling like, you know, I'm kind of a bit late to the party. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You do feel like you kind of sneak in. Yeah, yeah, you kind oh. of sneak in and I, hey, sorry. I bought pretzels, but yeah. I know. <laughs> I'm late. Um, and, See, more um, food, more food. Sorry, more food. No, 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 I don't. Because it's almost lunchtime. It might it's be lunchtime. Well. It is. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, we'll get your bowl of bliss balls is on the way. Um, <laughs> so what my experience was, and, and, and I'd be very curious again for you to uh, share yours, is, you know, rocking up in this very, very, uh, humble way, essentially kind of standing quietly at the at the side, kind of going, well, I'm sure there's a place for me here, but you know, I'm expecting that I'm going to be learning, watching, observing, you know, sort of waiting for a moment or an invitation to kind of just step up and say, okay, so what, what is it that, that you would like to do? Um, actually finding, at least in the cohorts that I was exposed to, um, 
that the majority of people of all walks of life, ages, geographic points of origin, geographic location currently, stage of education, there was an overwhelming sense of basically what do I do and where is my role and I'm not able to act and then me sitting in the you know sort of couch of humility was actually sort of being invited to step up and say well let's tell us about you know tell us about the things that you are doing and isn't this great and but you're in business and you're doing this and you know you're you're actually generating an income oh and a profit from this like whoa you know, to hear students, you know, up in Indonesia who have walked away from finance degrees because they have had this, you know, sense of wokeness to come into the climate movement, but feeling like those two are at odds. Whereas, as we know, we absolutely need those well-intentioned climate-aware people in the finance industry because there's there's so much to be done there. Um, so, yeah, just, you know, for for a moment before we move on to the, well, how do we bring them to action? Like what, what was your experience in that same well, comparable space? I, I did exactly the same thing. So I thought I'm going to go and really listen. And it was also probably my opportunity to listen a bit to while I was kind of as aware of the climate science and, and I hadn't heard from climate scientists in a significant way. You know, it's not a kind of an area that I take t- took interest. I kind of knew about it at a kind of, at a kind of, um, high level, but I, I thought I'll learn a lot. I'll learn a lot about the climate science. I'll learn a lot about um, what's happening globally. And I was also particularly interested because they had made a real effort to have people from uh, leaders from across the Pacific um, Islands. And I also heard some really fantastic speeches from the Torres Strait. And that, that was a bit of a moment where you just go, this is happening like this isn't just happening to people in Fiji or whatever bank. This is happening to Australians in the Torres Strait. Like their their islands are being swallowed. Um, they are not being listed. There was a moment almost of you know, and I'm not a big fan of shame, but of shame. How can I not? You know, how do I not know this? This is happening to Australians. And there were some really powerful messages, including from one of the local council, like one of the mayors in the Torres Strait, saying, "We will be the first." Um, climate refugees in our own country and so so I found it you know a lot of information that I found really useful a lot of powerful communicators I looked around the room and saw a diverse group not just kind of in the normal ways we talk about diversity but I suppose in terms of walks of life and I think there was a bit of excitement that Al Gore was there and there was so there was a lot of enthusiasm but I suppose you're right in the sessions there is always this sense of what can I do and how, what impact will that make? And that's really just an amplification of what happens when I do focus groups of ordinary, you know, so-called ordinary citizens where people express their anxiety they place, and, they, and concern. They often say, I'm really worried for future generations. Look at what happened with the fires. I don't want constant hot, you know, weather. You know, how are we going to, you know, I worry for the future. I worry for this, I worry for that. And then they go, but what can I do? And even if you're asking me to do a whole range of things, am I sure it's going to have the impact it has? And I think part of this, of course, is this sense and a justifiable pushback, which is I want to play a role, but I also want to make sure that the people and organisations whose job it is, who get paid the big bucks and whose responsibility is it, 
to really provide a context to make sure that whatever I'm doing is impactful. So the Prime Minister, <laughs> oh, yeah, all the people in Parliament, all the people who run the kind of big com- companies and businesses in this country who make a lot of money, I want to make sure that they're working with me. So I think that that thing that you found was certainly something I found and is communicating around that and breaking through that sense of why me, what do I do and what does it matter, which I suppose is the, is really at the heart of what those anxiety is, is our biggest challenge. Yeah, and this is it. So, so as we were discussing, there's this, I think, very significant and I'm you know very aware of my own um you know sort of confirmation bias here but I just see this everywhere I look at the moment there is this big I wouldn't necessarily say it's a shift I think it's been there for a long time but there certainly seems to be a big emphasis on the need for all of this transitional transformative work to be place-based and as individual as possible, because that's where you can apply that lens with greatest effect and say, what is most important to you? And take it from there. <laughs> oh, no, I think back, that's back exactly to you. Right. Like, you, you had a great analogy about, uh, you know, sort of what to, what to do when you're exploring with people, well, what's most important to you and how to sort of amplify whatever their response is and orientate that towards playing an active role in making this, making this change stick. Yeah, and look, what I've tried to do and um, a little bit like a bowerbird is I spend an enormous amount of time finding quirky organisations and quirky examples of effective climate action. Um, one of my one of the one of the people I actually met at um, so to inspire people, you know, to find a hook. You know, there's always got to be a hook, and I'm always trying to find as many. One of the people that I met at um, Climate Reality, who I've kept in contact with, was somebody who, within Tennis Australia, um, who, and this was before we had the Australian, remember we had an Australian Open where there was, you know, so we've had quite a lot of outdoor tennis in Australia really disrupted by either extreme heat or, um, or you know, can you imagine with the kind of smoke that we had in, you know, pl- playing outdoor tennis, you know, a lot of big name people would go, I don't want to go to Australia and pass out from the heat and, you know, have to swallow lungs full of that. So I remember talking to somebody from Tennis Australia who talked about trying to progress climate as a priority for the organisation but also trying to work out how, to, how, does, how does tennis as a, as a sport lower its footprint. And I, I, that was the first time when I thought and that thinking you know, really a great way to think about, you know, how you talk about some of these questions. Sport is so important to Australia. And now we've seen a really fantastic group of, um, of sports people across all kinds of sports come together with a campaign around, um, with front runners. And so I got a chance to work with them as well. Nobody wants to play AFL in, in, in bushfire smoke in really hot weather. No one wants to do that. Um, no one wants to do any of those kinds of things. So yeah, so I think that, you know, I, I'm I'm spend a lot of time, and I would encourage people who are also leaders in this area, spending lots of time to find really relevant, interesting, and new ways to start the conversation around climate. I mean, before we before we started recording, you talked about, 
you know, having a conversation with a family member just about something I love doing, which is fishing and observe and getting them to talk about how that might have changed over their time and having that as opening up a new space, a a new but familiar space to talk about an issue that for so long has been positioned as either a divisive conversation about politics, a inaccessible conversation where you have to have a PhD in physics or, (laughs) or biology or whatever or biochemistry, opening it up to make it part of an everyday meaningful, non-divisive conversation. Yeah, I love all of that. And what I'd like to do is invite you to build on that. Um, so if, if, if someone listening to this is looking to take the lead you know, in their own life, in conversations on the home front or in their community or in their place of worship or in their place of work, or they are in fact a leader in any of those places, and somebody who is, in the non-heroic sense, just looked to to sort of show where the direction is going. You've provided a few um, in the preparation that you kindly did for this conversation, but what are the sort of specific recommendations that you would um, suggest people can, can, can take to contribute to sort of sustaining this change? I think that everything with behaviour change, the, the first step, take a small first step into the area where you have the greatest level of confidence. So for me, that step was the, you know, and I write about at the beginning of the book, that moment when I kind of looked at the climate strikers and thought and felt, oh, they're actually asking my generation, which is me, to do something. And I felt they were speaking directly to me. It was really quite a profound experience. The first thing I did, I literally got off the couch and I went and I changed my superannuation. I didn't change my fund. I changed the kind of fund I had within that superannuation, the kind of account I had within it. So I divested. Why did I do that? Well, I've I've been researching super for a really long time and I knew that that was actually quite an impactful thing to do. Even though it was an individual consumer choice, I knew because I worked with superannuation funds that they were watching how many people were, how many of their members were opting for that fund, asking those questions, raising those issues at annual general meetings. So I knew, I appreciated that that would have an impact. It was important to me personally, but I also knew that it was important and I talked about it with other people. And I suppose that was something that I felt I could do easily, quickly. That wasn't going to be really, I'm not, not going to retire for another 20 years. Um, and also I, I had a confidence about it. But it led to a range of other important decisions and it led to, you know, what's been, you know, so a series of other important decisions. So what I would say to people is think about the area of expertise or knowledge or power or connections that you have that you feel most confident and see where you can start that conversation or that journey. So if you happen to be, like a lot of my family, Catholic, we've very luckily got um, the Pope's very powerful encyclical on climate. If you were part of a church or part of a reading group, a faith-based reading group, you might suggest, let's read it. In fact, one of my most, I've been, I've had such an extraordinary experience writing this book of people all around Australia and around the world contact me about it. But one of the nicest things was a 
wonderful group of uh, women who have a reading group all from church read my book and then they sent me a copy of the Pope's encyclical that they all signed. They found my address and they said, thank you so much. We read the encyclical and we read your book and now they talk about a whole range of things like divesting their super and, you know, renewable energy and how important it is to vote for candidates that care about climate. Go to your local member and say, well, are, are your views about climate the same as your party? Those kinds of things. You know, they can be really quite small, um, quite small things to do that start a conversation and normalise not only a conversation about a climate but potentially send people off on a meaningful, personal and impactful path about doing things. I think there are things that are more helpful than others, but I don't want to be too prescriptive about what that looks like um, and what that means. You don't have to become a different person, but you can, you know, look around, do an audit of of where you've got influence and where you've got confidence and, and start. I, I can't guarantee... You know, I've said this before in a few interviews. I can't guarantee it will. It, so if you had told me that I would be here <laughs> three years ago and I've done the things I've done and kind of I would have thought, oh, wow, that's big, right? But it didn't feel big at the time. It just felt, okay, I'm going to do something about my super. I'm going to really look into that electric car and I'm going to just do work on climate. I don't, I, I you know, it has led me to, I mean, a fantastic place and probably the most professionally fulfilling moment of my life, uh, time of my life. But yeah, it did, it has brought about really quite a substantial change personally and professionally, that kind of one step towards that. So I can't guarantee that you won't, that might, might not also happen to you, but it, I could, um, and that, there won't be moments where you really are quite anxious about how it's all going to pan out. I'm quite anxious about what's going to happen at COP26 um, because if it doesn't, if we if we have another kind of collapse like we've had or a kind of a, a insufficient, like a kind of um, underwhelming outcome, I worry about the level of public confidence in those kinds of forums to really solve the kind and, and the need for international cooperation. But anyway, I think it really boils down to the journey starts with a first small effective step that works for you and it can lead anywhere. So since you've touched on how fulfilled you are and that the potential at least exists that that is possible from making this kind of shift. What are some specific things, you know, sort of outcomes and rewards is how I typically frame them that you, know, you have gained from making this change and for sustaining it as you have? And, you know, how do you think that, you know, that might be broadened out and be experienced by others and potentially the world as well? It's a really good point. So I was having, I was having um, drinks much, much, much anticipated drinks in an actual bar with a real-life person on Friday, on Sunday night. So one of my oldest friends from um, high school and she was, you know, we're both about to turn 50. We've both, you know, got kids. We've both been working for a really long time, worked very hard, very career-oriented. And she said, she said she was feeling a bit burnt out and she really need, knew she needed another 10 or, you know, 15 years of work 
And she said, you know, you work as hard as me. Why aren't you burnt out? And I said, I said, I probably would be had I not found the climate movement because, I mean, there are days I feel tired and the days I feel, but there feels like some I'm working towards something bigger. And so, and the other thing I, the other thing I get is the, is a connection into the energy of the broader climate movement. And by broader, I mean, it can be anything from doing this interview with you to later on a conversation with, you know, a very corporate-y, you know, person within a large organisation, which is like, right, we're going to make a really big statement about COP and our 2030 targets and, you know, we're talking to the board and blah, blah. You know, so it, it's we're not just talking about hardcore greenies here. There is that sense of so much is happening and there is so much um, energy and genuine goodwill that, at a time where I might normally feel kind of quite burnt out, I don't. So I feel that the the movement itself is renewable energy. Right? <laughs> Just <come up. laughs> and so that's what I get. So I get a kind of renewable energy from the movement, which stops the kind of usual, we all have it at 50, that kind of, oh, I've just been working for so long and I've got still got to trudge forward. Um, you know, I, I find that, the other thing it gives me is I think if I was outside looking in at what was happening and not make a contribution, I'd be more worried. I mean, I don't talk about climate much with my kids. We do talk about recycling and plastics and animals and all those kinds of things and, you know, they learn about it, about it at school. I don't want them to be climate anxious or climate concerned. I don't want them to lie in bed at night and worry about the future of the world. I kind of feel like I'm doing the work so they don't have to worry and I worry less because I kind of feel like I feel hopeful and optimistic, um, I mean realistic because it's an enormous challenge and a lot, Stuff has been lost and more stuff will be lost because there's not much we can do about that. But I feel like we've got a really fighting chance to create a livable world for everyone, not just the people who can afford to go into space, but, <laughs> but everybody if we get our act together in the time that we have. So it helps my mental health. So I kind of feel like I get professional energy um, protection from depression or anxiety or a sense of powerlessness, um, so improvements of mental health and moments of genuine excitement and joy when I see people, um, uh, when I see genuine steps forward. So you mentioned one around BlackRock today which makes you think, wow, you know, stuff is happening I talked a bit about, I don't know whether it was on before we talked about, you know, Monday, Hertz have decided to buy hundreds and thousands of Teslas for their fleet. So basically decarbonising their fleet. And you just think, wow, that's a bit as a two a big mainstream transport brand saying, no, nope, we're gonna throw our and that's not big and Teslas are still more expensive than normal cars at least to buy. So that's a significant upfront investment in a future that will be a decarbonised transport future. So you see things like that and every day there's stuff like that. So you actually feel like I'm part of something that's working. Yes, belatedly, yes, <laughs> unevenly, yes, there's still challenges, but 
yeah, and that's why I can, that's why I'm able to work seven days a week. <laughs> um, I'm planning on taking some time off this Christmas for the first time in 15 years, but I may not. You never know. Something might happen. Hopefully, not more not more horrible fires like we had a couple of years ago. But you never know. Yeah, hundred percent. So thank you for that. Um, I'm conscious that there's a couple of steps that that we should take uh, before we draw this to a close, but. I would like just to reflect on and reciprocate some of the points that you've just made. So I'm exactly the same in terms of level of fulfillment and energy and I think really it's belief as well, right, in what you are doing. Um, I think the cautionary tale that I've experienced is that, you know, this is a turbulent world and I mean, last year was just a complete onslaught um, for us here. I mean, it started with fires just everywhere and a very particular experience that um, was cathartic, but only in um, sort of deep processing afterwards. Then we had floods and then we had COVID. But through all of that, you know, I was diligently striving um, to do this kind of work and did come very close to burning myself out because there is a sort of almost uh, uh, an addictive uh, obligation to this kind of work. So totally hear you. And I think there is, there is just enough of an underlier of and. Be as professionally fulfilled as you can. Be renewed by the energy of and with others from doing this most meaningful work, know that there is abundant opportunity to do this work everywhere and that that is building every day. It's probably multiplied on some bizarre you know, ratio even over the duration of this conversation. Um, and know that you must renew and regenerate yourself in order to perpetuate all of those previous things. Um, and then just finally on the kids, so, you know, we evacuated three times in 10 days. We didn't kind of mask from our kids why, you know, the sky was orange and why, you know, it sm- everything smelt like a campfire. And, you know, our three-year-old still draws pictures of fire. Um, and my seven-year-old, you know, is in a class of kids, a number of whom are now being clinically treated for PTSD. Um so, you know, those who say you shouldn't talk about climate because of what you will do to your kids, um, my experience is they're having that experience already. Um, and actually, you know, talking to them about what you are doing is a way to sort of bring them along the journey. Um, so it was particularly heartwarming when um, my little boy brought home from school one of those, you know, like questionnaires that they fill out. One of the questions is, you know, what do your parents do for work? Um, and I can't remember the exact wording, but about my wife who, you know, works within the NDIS system, he says mummy works to help people who, you know, can't help themselves. And daddy's helping leaders make the world better. I was just like, oh, buddy. Uh, 
so now his little voice is is, is the final closing um seconds of every episode of this ever since he brought that home i was like right mate you're in uh you know come that's on come beautiful. on down that's so much better than what my eldest daughter once when i was at a book writers festival and she had come with me and i was just standing you know sitting there signing books and she she was about seven and she proclaimed it very loudly that my mum's kind of famous but only with boring people <laughs> Right. Yeah. Kudos. Thanks for that. Which, yeah. which was really edifying to the boring people that were. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the few boring people who were trying to um, buy my book and sign it. But uh, Too funny. No, I think that's right. And, you know, they don't, I mean, what a horrible experience you had and everybody up and down the South Coast. But, you know, there isn't a, a young Australian who isn't on social media and isn't getting messages around climate change on social media all the time from their peer group, from the news. They're learning about it at school as part of the curriculum and why not? So, you know, if it's like it's like it's like saying telling young people um, making sure young people don't get access to information about sex will mean that they won't get pregnant. I mean it's that it's that naive. They are already being impacted themselves and their peers around the world. They're already learning about it. The cat is out of the bag. So what you really need to do is give them effective ways to address those issues and to see their leaders, their parents' generation doing things about it um, so that they don't fall into a level of despair. Yeah, and look, action will overcome anxiety and in a very, very different way. But um, I remember, you know, sitting down with the career counsellor, you know, my senior year at university and, you know, with a range of options put in front of me which were in no way related to what I saw myself doing or what I wanted to be and, you know, what I am doing now and, you know, what a lot of the, um, you know, the sort of the um, economy certainly, uh, you know, in our part of the world are driven by now are jobs that didn't exist 20 years ago when I was an undergraduate. But I think what you can show young people now is, well, here are all the jobs, here are the careers, here's other things that your learning can be applied to. Um, like just as a very, very quick example, um, I had a conversation a few weeks ago um, with a young woman who's working um, in a research institute of an Australian university who is creating the curriculum for school TAFE, which is in Australia, our, our sort of vocational college system, um, and undergraduates to learn how to work in the hydrogen economy. Oh, wow. Right? Like that work is being done now within an educational faculty because they recognize that there's actually an enormous skills deficit. And that's going to be one of those delaying issues that we, we haven't got the people to do the work in these plants that are going to be coming online. Um, but clearly, this conversation could continue. Um, but it can't for the time being. So a couple of um, short steps to, again, thank you very much for your time here, everything that you're doing. Is there a particular place or space or cause or group that is prominent for you right now that you would suggest that anyone who's had anything resonate in what we've discussed today should orientate themselves towards? I'm the chair of the advisory board of an organisation called Parents for Climate Action. 
they're all around Australia and regional Australia, and they're really driven by parents, men and women who are looking to do very practical things around climate, so making sure that um, all the schools in their local area have solar panels, but also trying to find ways to communicate to politicians to say, look, this really matters. This is our kids' future. I mean, you're in your job to create a better future and this is something we're worried about. So I'm really proud and pleased to do the work that I do with them. Uh, I'm, look, and I, I'm, I'm all for really um, ways that can cut through on climate that, uh, that defy some of the worst characterisations of people who worry about climate as grim, joyless, <laughs> inner city, you know, um, uh, people who hang around in wine bars and, you know, complain about bogan. So I really love the recent um, intervention by Dan Illick, who's a, um, who's a comedian who's done these, you know, crowdsourced these very, very funny um, posters, I mean, kind of outdoor media in, in America and, and Glasgow to just kind of say... Oh, Colorful Dundee, seriously, like, that's borderline <laughs> genius. <laughs> And I'm, look, I'm a big fan of, you know, I mean, that's the other thing I I get, I thought that I'd move into the climate movement and be depressed a lot, but actually I find so much joy and happiness and um, fulfilment working with people who are not joyless at all. And of course, you know, there's nothing like spending time in the Australian bush to, to bring, to spark joy as well. So... I'm a big fan of new and, and and creative ways to communicate about climate that are funny, and I suppose the, the 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 final thing I would say is the next federal election will see a lot of really really interesting independent candidates who may not get up, but are certainly going to start to challenge, you know, their business as usual model around climate around Australia, um, and. I would never tell people how they would vote, but I would certainly get people to notice that some of those independents can play a really critically important role in rejuvenating trust in our institutions, that you're going to have people that aren't captive by the kind of stranglehold kind of politics around this and are prepared to put their money and time on the line and run in the next ca- in the next election. So I'd encourage people to just kind of w- watch what's happening with some of those independents and get to know them. I think, you know, as much as, uh, you know, as much as major parties are, end up being what, what run governments and it's really important to think about improving major parties, I think um, turning your mind to what those independents are going to do is also really important. Awesome. So aside from going to buy at least one of your books. Or asking your local library. So I always say, you know, I know that every people don't have always tons of money to buy books. So you can always buy one and share it. Or but if you if you want to ask your local library to get an uh, get a copy, every time somebody borrows it from the library, I get a tiny bit of money. There you go. Okay. So, so you're not you're not cheating me from from money for my book if you borrow it from a library. <laughs> so either get your own yeah. and then share it with friends potentially or Go and ask your local library to get at least one copy. Uh, given that, of course, everybody now is completely wrapped in what you're doing and what you're uh, saying, where would you most like people to follow, connect, interact with you in all these wonderful social platforms? Yeah, look, I understand Twitter's not everybody's um, cup of tea, but there's a really informative and, you know, good 
culture on Twitter around information around climate and I often amplify and tweet. I'll, I'll occasionally tweet on climate, but most of the time I'm taking really fantastic things that are happening around the world, really, really trusted information and retweeting it. So you can follow me at Rebecca Huntley too. Um, and then I'm also on LinkedIn where I talk, where, and LinkedIn is mainly where I um, post the kind of work I'm doing or events that I'm um, part of or research that I'm doing. So um, that's a little bit more my own kind of work. So feel free to follow me on either of those platforms. Perfect. Well, we've got those in the show notes. So just scroll down and click follow, connect, join, listen, whatever the appropriate button is on those platforms. Um, and just now a final invitation any closing words, parting statements or invitations of your own that you would like to leave us with for today? Thank you so much. This is um, this time has flown by. <laughs> um, my and um, and thank you for your work as well. I mean, I think the thing that um, the thing that that we need more is is um, I suppose meaningful, thoughtful conversations about climate that kind of that are kind of counterweight or counterpoint to the kind of divisive conversations that we've had. And I hope people find this kind of accessible and useful. Um and yeah, it's had a lovely time. Thank you. Perfect. Well thank you. And uh yeah, I look forward to myself following uh and contributing and participating in any way I can to everything that we need to get out there and do. I'm waving through the, the turmeric latte circle at you. In the- <laughs> <laughs> well, given that, you know, as of Monday, uh, I, I can uh, once again return to that oh, mystical really? place uh, from which I have been uh, kept for a very long time. Uh, maybe I might uh, tweet an invitation for a turmeric latte and a blitz ball <laughs> at some point. <laughs> all right good on you thank you it's been an absolute pleasure thank you wow (laughs) did you enjoy that we went from the turmeric latte curtain via essentially universal systemic collapse of well everything to we have a fighting chance to create a livable world to everyone via some meaningful work the way to have change catalyzing conversations and how to take care of yourself to keep showing up, sustain this change and keep doing the work. I kind of clung on through that conversation, um, you know, through all the twists and turns, but I mightily enjoyed that and I hope that you did listening to it. Um, Rebecca is a joy. Uh, Her work is inspirational. She is incredibly humble. Um, and very, very fun to spend time with, even virtually from either side of that aforementioned curtain. Um, but it is, it is a rare privilege to have these conversations and, uh, and an absolute honour to share them with you. So, again, not going to spend too much time, as I have done in previous seasons, you know, kind of unpacking this and going into all the saliency for me. I am going to be inviting Rebecca back and hoping to have a bit of a panel conversation with another very interesting, very inspiring guest uh, to talk a little bit more about this change that we must sustain. So hold on for that, hopefully coming kind of towards the back end of this season. 
But look, I mean, it, it, it really is about this meaningful work part. Like that's that's the what's in it for me. Yeah, that's the that's the real change that I've embraced, and I think it's fair to say both Rebecca and I have embraced through, you know, sort of coming home to ourselves, uh, to quote Joe Confino, um, and and really, um, you know, sort of discovering, rediscovering one of these two things that we now actually see this trail of breadcrumbs stretching off in front of us that we actually have been following our whole lives, and and this is just a juncture within it, or as Rebecca said, we now recognize something we had not seen as we look back at our lives and that we are looking back now through a different lens because of things that we are seeing now. And that, I think, is where I will leave it with you for today. With a sort of a reflective inquiry on that point. Is there a trail of breadcrumbs at your feet right now that takes you and your leadership towards creating a better world? And if not, and if that path has not yet been carved in front of you, what do you see? You take a look back, flick through those pages of the book that you've been writing since your birth and have a look now through the lenses that perhaps this conversation has provided and see what you might see and see what that path might look like if you were to decide, if you were to decide to walk upon it. For now, I thank you for your time and attention. On Rebecca's behalf, thank you for listening to this conversation. And on my behalf, I look forward to welcoming you back to Better World Leaders very soon for another, I hope, fabulous co-created conversation but no guarantee of turmeric lattes in the next one. (laughs) See ya. As always, great thanks and appreciation to the team who contributed to bringing better world leaders to you. To Brendan Ward for production of all audio recordings and composition and performance of original music throughout each episode. To Cooper and the team at Radio Hub Studios for technical support and creative guidance during the episodes that are recorded face-to-face. To Knock Knock Studios for website design, hosting and advice. And to Sarasa Design for logo and site graphics. You'll find audio and video recordings of this episode, as well as links to any specific recommendations or related resources that were mentioned today in the podcast area of 4iLeadership.com backslash insights. This is the Better World Leaders podcast, brought to you by 4i Leadership. to world.